start off telling you guys something really cool that happened uh, to me this week, uh, because it's going to be pertinent to what I want to discuss as well. Um, so I was visiting my dad in New York. He, uh, two and a half weeks ago, he had a surgery, a open heart surgery, uh, very difficult, complex surgery, and he's recovering really nicely, but I went in to visit him a couple of days. Uh, either way, there's a steady stream of visitors, uh, friends and acquaintances and people come and visit him to see how he's doing, help him recover. Either way, I was sitting there on, uh, I guess it was Wednesday night, and someone comes in, and incidentally, they went for something else, but somehow they sat down and they started talking, and they, this guy said that, oh, he also has had some heart issues in the past, and in fact, he was once by this wedding, and he was dancing really animatedly, and he was excited, and he collapsed and had a heart attack. And <clears throat> for 18 minutes, he was dead. And they brought out the defibrillators, and they spent 18 minutes, and not only that, the place is full of Jews. What happens when you have a dead body and the, in a place full of Jews? You make an announcement, all the Kohanes have to leave the room. Right? A Kohen, even to this day, is prohibited from coming into contact or even being in the same enclosure as a dead body, as a dead Jewish body, that is. So that's why, by the way, if you ever go to a Jewish funeral, uh, cemetery, you'll notice that all the uh, headstones that are adjacent to the path uh, are all Kohen or Kaplan, or all the names of cats, all the names that are associated with Kohens. Yeah, Khan, exactly. But why? Because if you're a Kohen, you can't walk into a cemetery. So you want to visit grand, granddaddy or your, you know, your dad or your cousin or your uncle, right? The only way to visit there. Burial spot is if they put the spot actually right next to the place where you can walk. Uh, either way, this guy was dead, and they told all the Coins leave the room. We have a dead body here. They kept on trying to revive him anyhow. Either way, as we know, I, mean, I spoke to him four years later. He managed to make it through, and he's doing all okay. He's actually a remarkable guy. He's like, um, he's like a kindness aficionado. He's like a guru of kindness. He has, um, his whole life is about kindness. Like he, uh, he, he has like these families that he marries off and orphanages and, 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 and hospitality. He's just an incredible guy. Um, so either way, we're sitting there talking to them. We're like, you know, and so I was like, well, what happened to you? Like, what do you remember from what happened to you when you died? Just yeah, pretty sure. Like this is, you know, you hear about people that have near-death experiences. Yeah, yeah. This is a guy who had it. <laughs> So, you had so I was thinking, no, yeah, he, he saw light or something, or narrow, whatever, something like that's more like a platitudinal, what we've all heard, like, you know. Sure. Either way, he told us this incredible story of, like, details of what he saw. And some guy, like, pulls out his phone and, like, starts videotaping. He's like, no, 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 no videotaping. Like, he was, like, serious. And, like, you know, I'm, I'm a skeptic, and I'm sitting there listening to him talk for 20 minutes. I'm like, this guy's telling the truth. It's crazy. You know, I want to hear everything. Yeah. So, so what I actually did, I actually, he said no recording. I'm like, this isn't going to be good. I whipped out my phone and recorded it on the audio. So I actually have the audio recording. Unfortunately, it's in Hebrew. Um, uh, but I still have the recording, and I, I want to still listen to it again myself because this was amazing. So you're going to translate broadcast. Yes, I'll give you the, the, the broad strokes of what I remember. Okay. So he says he, he has, well, what's interesting is that he, he has such a vivid uh, memory of what he saw. It wasn't like, uh, you know, it, it wasn't ambiguous in any way, who he met and what he said and how he communicated, etc. So he, 
he says he meets his brother, his dead brother. And he's describing the scenery, and he, you know, he says his brother's telling him, you have to go back. You know, and he's talking to him, and he says, I don't want to go back. And he's having this conversation, and he says he sees this massive hole in the ground, and his brother tells him, make sure you don't fall into that hole, because if you fall into that hole, you can't get back out. And he says, he's talking to his brother, back and forth, having this negotiation, but he says he feels drawn to keep on going. He's like, he's like, he's like this, the most intense feeling that he's ever had is telling him to go forth. So he goes forth, and he says he's describing what he sees, the, the, the scenery and the surroundings, and it's all like in these, you know, these, these terms that like, you know, he's like, you almost can't describe it. Uh, the most beautiful mountain he sees. He's the most beautiful mountain, and then he's, he's walking towards it, and he's like, you know, and then he sees his parents, his deceased parents, and he said he had a son who died as well, and he sees him as well. And, he, and he's so delighted, he's so delighted to see him. His son is jumping for joy, he's so excited to see him. And the son tells him, he looks at his parents, the parents are like stone cold, like they're ashen, they're like upset, they're like, you know, they're not talking. And his son tells him, don't shake their hands. You know, then he's, and he's telling us, by the way, there's a halacha, there's a law, that when you're in a dream and you meet a dead person, you shouldn't shake their hands. You know, we don't, we don't want to have this deep, intimate connection with dead people. Fine. And it's like, his son tells him, don't shake their hands. And he's having this whole negotiation. I, have to, I don't remember the exact details, but it's all recorded, thankfully, for posterity. Uh, um, of should he go back, should he not go back, uh, and, his, and he's, he's talking to them back and forth. Fine. And then he says, he sees in the distance a, this most beautiful cloud, and this cloud like opens up a, like, a, like, a, uh, like, a, like, um, like curtains. Curtains open up of this cloud, and he walks towards it, and he sees there's a descending ladder coming down, bless you, uh, from the cloud. And he walks to this, and he meets people walking down. He says he met someone, and he tells all the assembled people in the room, everyone here knows, the guy said to him, hi, you are this guy, and this is who I am. And he's like, he refused to tell us who this guy was. And he says, everyone in the room has heard of this person. I don't know who it is. We can only guess, right? We can only speculate, even though we have good guesses uh, from later on in the story. He's like, and he tells him that I, we, think, we think you should go back. We think you should go back. He says, well, I don't know if I want to go back, back and forth. He says, okay. So the guy says, uh, we're going to go have a, a, a court, uh, a judgment now. Sit down and decide, should he go back or not. So he says, he disappears into the cloud. And the cloud is so blindingly light that he's trying to squint and see what he sees inside. He sees three figures there, but he can't make them out who they are. Eventually, the guy comes back, and he tells him, okay, we decided you should go back. And then he goes back, and he meets his parents again, and his parents are so delighted, but he lost the ability to talk, bizarrely. He says, like, once, he, like once his fate was sealed, so to speak, he no longer was able to negotiate or communicate. And then he meets his brother back again, and then he meets the Chafetz Chaim, who was one of the great... Uh, 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 leaders, of the, the leader of the Jewish people in the first half of the century, who tells him, by the way, I'm the Chavetz Chaim, and uh, I know what your name is, and you should go build your hospitality in Muncie, New York. He tells him, insane. And by the way, as a sidebar, he, he mentioned that they, they recently found a video from the 1923 convention of rabbis that happened in Europe. 
and this was the first time that they actually caught the Chafetz Chaim on video. And he said he saw this video and he couldn't stop crying. This is what the guy looked like in his... And then that's all he remembers, and he's up, uh, and he's alive. Have you, ever, have you read very many other near-death experiences? Uh, well, there's a bunch of books written about it, Life After Life, uh, etc. Some guy did it. Uh, there was a guy who was really skeptical about it. Um, and he was present when, you were talk- when he was talking? Uh, no, 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 no. I'm saying there's a guy in the oh, 70s okay. who was very skeptical about these narratives of near-death experiences, so he actually interviewed, he did copious interviews, I think hundreds of, of people who made claims and he found parallels between these claims and people were able to experience things that they couldn't have known otherwise. Things that were happening outside of the room or ha- happening to them. Uh, either way, that's the story. Now, um, Did he go to Muncie? Oh, yeah, that's where he lives. Oh. That's where my parents live. Uh, couldn't he have been not physically dead, but clinically dead. There is oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. So dreaming all this. Yeah, well, it's possible. Um, we, you know, do we make a big deal about this? No, we don't. Um, you know, does this mean this is prophecy? Also not. Uh, but this guy's telling you, and it's clear from his, from what he's telling you, this is the truth. It's right. clear. Why do you think he was so um, reluctant to you taping? Or it's... Well, it's probably one of the most emotional, his most deepest emotional experience that he's ever he's ever underwent. I'm sure this would be for us, and you don't want that broadcast. Well, yeah, just that he said it was like as real as we're experiencing this reality now. He said it's also, more real than I'm talking to you. Okay. So because you clearly know what a dream's like. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Like okay. this is it's clear. Like I mean, he's, he mentioned that. Are he he mentioned this while he's talking to us and. I, both me and my dad afterwards, we had this. We were like shell shocked after he left after 25 minutes on the story, and I, I said to him, "I said, how about this guy's telling the truth?" He's like, "Yeah," and we're both skeptics. I assure you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm saying skeptic of people coming to say things like he's giving these details and he's getting emotional about this story. Like this guy's telling the truth. Now, when did he have it? Was it when he was dead, or the three days afterwards he's in a coma? Who knows? Uh, but what I, I'm saying, the reason why I'm going to bring it in is because I found in the Talmud a description of a near-death experience. Can I ask a question? Go ahead. You said he was a giver and he was taking care of his kids. And oh, yeah. Was that before? Oh, that's what he always, he always, that's what he always, that's what he always and he continues to this day. That's right. Yeah, well, that's, yeah. Uh, what was interesting to me is what happens to someone after they've had such an experience? How does it change their lives or does it? Because uh, I think um, the research has shown some people like uh, adopt religion after they've had such an experience because they've 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 had a touch point with this other world, which you know really opens up a lot of questions and and conclusions really about 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 the afterlife and the existence of a soul and the implications of what that what, what does that mean for us here like if we knew for sure that there's this whole other world, you know, where things may be dramatically and radically different than what our world is today, and indeed it's more lasting, well, how would that affect our behavior now? And I would make the argument, which I think everyone here really knows, that that, this theme is a theme we see again and again in the Torah. I'll give you ten examples, but uh, 
The easiest example is where the Mishnah tells us that this world is like a corridor before the next world. You know, this is just a, we're on a train to a destination. Yet, unfortunately, we're designed to believe that this train is all that we've got. And to try to invest only in the process and not in the destination. And you get to the destination, you're not ready for it. Uh, and the Talmud um, documents the first ever claim of a near-death experience. Uh, and what's interesting is that and, and near to the, the way we would define it is the uh, soul and body separating and the soul experiencing what a soul experiences after someone dies and then still being reinserted back into that body and having memories of that experience. Now, I would say that the person, you know, if they have just died or they're about to die or, or, or they're kind of on, on the fence, so to speak, between life and death, and they die, but then they come back, they're not really fully dead. you know. But so long as it's possible to revive them, they're not fully dead. So I don't know if this would parallel exactly what a dead person would feel uh, or what the soul would experience, um, but it's, it's a, for sure a measure of that. Um, and we have a very interesting Talmud in the book of Baba Basra, which incidentally deals with the laws of property and the laws of partnerships and the laws of, uh, of, of transference and acquiring of property, which doesn't seem to have anything to do with near-death experiences. Either way, interspersed, we have this very short narrative of one of the rabbis. His name was Rabbi Yosef, and he dies. He was sick, he died, and he came back to life. And his father, a fellow by the name of Rabbi Yehoshua, asked him, what did you see? And he responds as follows. Olam hafuch ra'isi. I saw an upside-down world. Elyonim lamata v'tachtonim lamala. The lofty ones are on the bottom, are lowly, and the lowly ones are on the top. And this dad responds to him, Rabbi Yoshua responds to him, Olam baru ra'isa. You didn't see an upside-down world, you saw a clear world. And then he continues, the father asked me, V'anan, and us, Torah scholars, how are we viewed in that world, in that clear world? He says, the same way you're viewed here, that's how you're viewed there. Okay? So, essentially there's three parts of this, uh, of, of this, uh, it's, well, there's a little bit more later on, but I cut that out uh, uh, of there's, there's more. There is more. He says more about what he what he heard, not what he saw, which is interesting. He saw some things, and then he heard other things. I'll tell you what he what he heard. He said, "I heard that they were saying, praiseworthy is he who comes here and has his Talmud in his hand.'" Okay, that's what he heard. But what did he see? So he saw an upside down world. The lofty ones. Right, that we consider lofty are there lowly, and the lowly ones there that we consider are uh, uh, are lofty. 
And his dad tells him, no, 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 you're making a big mistake. You saw a world that's dramatically different than our world. It's upside down. But where is it upside down? It means, you know, upside down is about perspective, right? So if I turn upside down, I'm upside down because you guys are all right side up. But what if we're all upside down and the guy who was right, uh, upside down is really right side up, right? So he tells him, no, 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 you didn't see an upside down world. You saw the clear world. Our world is upside down. Correct? And then he tells him, oh, and what's the status of the Torah scholars? She says, well, the same way they are here, they are there. Which means the Torah scholars are the ones that even in this upside down world, they're living in the clear world. Okay? Uh, now, what are the uh, takeaways here? Huh? Go ahead. You're confused. Uh, what, so, what do they mean by lofty ones? I was about to, yeah. Okay, what so. What do say is lofty ones in our present world? Like political leaders and people that are. So is it lofty people? Is it lofty ideas? Is it lofty pursuits? Is it lofty yeah. priorities? Is it all of them? The, the, is there another word for lofty? Yeah, that's what's the synonym in this time. Um, well, it's not clear. And the Talmud remember, is not uh, make it. Uh, it's not. Uh, it's 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 not the policy of the Talmud to spell things out for us. So you don't know if it's affluent people they're referring to, or prominent people, or. So, it's a little, so let's, let's 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 go step by step. Okay. So the first thing we could find that's very interesting is that there's parallel coexisting worlds. Somehow, this guy was able to depart ours to go there for a little bit. And they come back and tell us what he saw, which is in itself just very valuable. Like if you were able to have this insight into this other world and to gain some sort of perspective about what is important there versus contrast that with our world, that would be valuable. Okay, that's number one. Number, number two, what does he say? He says these worlds are set, they're opposites. It's an upside down world. Everything's opposite. It's opposite day, right? It's an upside down world. Everything's different. Um, so that, 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 I mean, that, that's clear. So the question is, what does it mean that what is lofty here is lowly there and vice versa? It means what, what's lofty in our world? What, what do we value? What do we prioritize? Money? Okay, what else? Material, okay. All the tea making in the playoffs. Well, so let's, so the question like this. Let's look, let's examine... Let's examine what people invest their time in, in this world. Our okay. Our okay. careers. Our careers. If you want to look at what people like idolize in this country, it drives me up the wall. It's actors. I mean, yeah, it's a Kim, great Kim Kardashian. Like this is lofty. But it's not the most important profession in the world. Yeah. 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 In my view, she's the lowest of the lows. Oh, but yeah, Kim Kardashian like, is, you know, Justin Bieber. I mean, I don't, I don't understand. find that entertaining. I'm sorry. Well, either it's way, but... Like you have a great uh, neurosurgeon, and there's a gossip magazine talking about who that neurosurgeon is dating, and he said all these... I mean, it's just like, it's, it's crazy. Well, so, but I think there's a commonality here is that... So you, may, you might not like that entertainment, but entertainment but is I a big... I don't see that as entertainment. Right, but... What, but what is entertainment? Right? Everything that we're describing here, almost everything we're describing some here, some people but not others. Right, but almost everything we're describing here is, is items that are related to our body and our physical existence. Right? 
Uh, and whether it's your career or pursuit of money or power or, or wealth acquisition or fitness or entertainment or fancy house, fancy car, it's all related to our body. It could be referring to rabbis or, or priests. It could be, you could say the lofty ones are the, the, the learned people. Well, but that's not lofty. Most people don't value that. What does this world value? Okay, I got you. Right? So what our world values, what we consider lofty, the people that are on our billboards and people that are on our television screens are the people that have accomplished or are uh, exemplary in realms that are related to the physical. How many times have you seen tabloids... Forget about neurosurgeons, but Torah scholars. Well, there are people. Huh? <coughs> That's lofty. This what? May be you strange. know what people say about Torah scholars? What do people say about Torah scholars? Well, okay, now wait a Parasites. Wait a don't, okay, what are they don't, doing studying Talmud? Okay, what are they wasting their time right, with? Now, wait a minute. Right. Now, they now, could have contributed there, to society. Don't Catholics or don't a lot of Catholics uh, venerate the Pope? Wouldn't he be considered lofty in some circles? I would think. So what does that tell us? <laughs> okay. What does that tell us? Draw the conclusion, right? What do people say about the Torah scholars? The people that are the the most spiritual people on the planet. The people that are doing more than anyone else, by the way. You know, you know what keeps this world alive? You know what keeps the engine rolling? What keeps us all breathing and this world from not imploding? Some guy in Israel studying Torah, and we were like, ah, what a waste of, what a waste of intelligence. He could have become a doctor, huh? Not not so in the military. <laughs> You know, so what we consider the most lowly, we, our world, considers lowly. You go to that world, and that's the only thing that matters. It's lofty. And what this world considers lofty, everything related to our physicality, uh, and the things that we invest our time and effort and focus and energy and ambitions in, well, that's lowly. That's that's not valuable at all in this other realm. Uh, and it, the contrast is so striking that Rabbi Yosef, he dies and he's like, or he, he doesn't, doesn't fully die, but he enters that world and he's like, well, everything's upside down. Everything's upside down. Like, literally, the things that we value the most is their value the least, and vice versa. And his father tells him, no, 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 he made a mistake. He didn't say upside down. That's the clear world. This world is upside down. The question is, well, okay, well, why is this, why is it, well, why? Or is there any way for us, like we didn't have this experience, but what's the lesson for us? What's the lesson? Why is it considered lowly, you know? All the physical material, the things that we invest a lot of our times and effort and focus and ambition and priorities, why is that lowly? Because it's for the body. It huh? Last. It doesn't last, right? Yeah, so we gave a few examples last week. Remember the guy comes with... our physical body being more tied to the earth, less to spirit. Is that where you're going? Well, well, think about, like, I, you know, I think a good way to approach this is like what we talked about last week. You know, the guy comes with the hot uh, stock tip. You know, and it's exciting and it's appealing. You're like, ooh, you can make so much money and it's really going to be a successful investment. You know, what's the prudent thing to do? You talk to, right? Someone comes with a hot stock tip, right? So what are they, they should talk to a financial advisor. Well, I would advise them to do that. <laughs> right? That, but would everyone agree that that would be prudent? Now, if, it, oh, if, if they, they, if, if they wanted to talk, if they wanted to know about gold, I would scare them junk. But 
No, yes, that's seek professional now, input. You got a better chance. That's right. Now, let's that's say, let's say it wasn't just a, stock, a hot stock tip. Let's say someone had the opportunity to invest their life savings, everything they've made. You definitely talk to me on this. You would definitely want to talk to an expert, right? Now, suppose you talk to the expert, and the guy proves to you that some event will happen that will guarantee that this. Uh, this stock drops to zero. And the you'll expert lose. proves. Yes, and, and, and it proves to you and it makes sense. Okay. And it's logical. And you agree to that proof, right? You have to be insane to still invest in that. Not only that, event that can happen, event that will happen. There's an event that's guaranteed to happen that will guarantee that you will lose every single solitary penny. Yes, you're going to die. Booyah. Right? So our life is an investment. Right? Our time, our efforts. Our, we have precious capacity here when we're alive. When we're dead, we lose that. Right? And we can invest in our life savings or our life capabilities in values and priorities and actions and thoughts and in time. Well, what do we spend our time doing? And we invest in the physicality and then we die. What happens to our investment? What do we have? from the fancy house and the fancy car and the vacation and the, uh, the vacation home and the Ferrari and uh, the career. Well, we don't have anything there, but we maybe have the satisfaction that we passed it on to Sherry. Oh, okay. That's true. I, I got that's families. fine. So it's not nothing. Sure. You know, but it's, you're just taking the ball down the road, right? So you passed on something that's also guaranteed to go to zero for them as well. What does it do for them, right? Yeah, but then maybe they, yeah, but isn't the idea to make things a little better for each generation? Yeah, but is that what it is? We're just, we're treading water before we die. Is that really all it's about? Or we can invest in something that will reap compound interest, baby, right? It's going to change the world fundamentally. But what about change, the guy who writes a beautiful poem? Yeah, yeah, so which is, which is interesting because yeah. we do kind of feel... We do kind of feel the desire to have some sort of immortality. But, but poems so, are made so, by fools like me, but only God can make a truth. <laughs> so, you just set me up for that, Vitaly. So, so you're right. So we have a we have a desire to have perpetuation. You know, so the guy who doesn't have any kids wants to build a hospital, right? You know, or the guy who does have kids is like thinking about, well, I could pass this on. Like, something will exist forever from me. So it's a poem, you know, or it's a business, or it's a monument, or, right? We need that because innately we know we have a soul, but we ignore it. Right? We, but we can actually invest in our soul and reap tremendous benefits. Right? And then once the facade Right? Once the fantasy, right? once the smoke screen is removed, right, that's all we have. And we're no longer drawn to the lofty, quote-unquote. doesn't have any appeal to us. Right? So we know for sure that the investment is going to zero. We know that for sure. Um, why? Because anything you invest in your body and your physicality and material life You'll have no benefit of once you're dead. You might have some ancillary benefit. I'm not going to deny that. But, you know, it's not, it's not you. It's your kids. And, you know, and I, I'm, not, and I'm not trying we'll have to, we'll have to temper this by saying, we're not trying to say that we should be months living on, uh, on mountaintops. That's not the point. You know, even 
you could do mitzvahs even with your with your material. That changes it from being material and physical to being spiritual. Uh, but we have a problem. Okay, this makes a lot of sense. But the problem is, is that we are designed to only seek out, or at least initially, only seek out this investment. I mean, you have this, this, this hot stock tip, and it's so appealing and exciting and alluring and enticing, and it's, it's so sexy, and you're like, ah, I have to invest in it, I have to invest in it, right? You know, sometimes you, have, you probably meet some clients that they're like, you can't talk reason to them. You know, they're so set. It's like, uh, you know, when you have a scam artist coming after like an old grandfather saying, well, you know, you won the lottery and the Nigerian prince stuff, right? And all you need to do is wire the 250000 and you get the $500 million, right? And sometimes like, this, you're, you're losing money, right? This is a scam. But no, they're, they're dead set in it. Why? They, because they're, I don't know, they're insane, right? Or they're, they're, they're captivated and you can't talk them out of it. We're like that as well. We're also a little bit insane. Right? This, we're also falling for the scam. We're falling for the scam. We're the suckers. We're the suckers that are falling for the Nigerian prince scam. Yeah, that's right. We, we're those guys. Because we're, we too are investing so much, so much of our, of our life capital in a sham, in a farce. And we think we're going to get something out of it, and then we die. And we're like, oh, goodness. <laughs> it, was so, it was so clear that this was it. That's what it is. And we can, you can't talk reason to us. You can't talk reason to us. You try to say, listen, this is a waste of time and money. You have all this life capital, all this capacity, all these gifts that the Almighty gives you, and you're wasting your time. You're losing it. You're, 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 you're squandering it. We're the, we're the sucker. Do you believe it? <laughs> we're that guy. Who falls for these things, right? It's so obvious. We do. Because the Almighty designed the world in a way that makes us only see, almost only seek out the physical. Logically, if we talk about it, we realize it's going to zero, for sure. We know that. It's clear. It's going to zero. It, anyone, anyone denies yet? No one denies. No one denied last week, and no one has yet to deny it this week. We know it's going to zero. Yeah, you should have some sort of ancillary benefits. I agree. And for sure, I'm not saying we're not issuing all physicality because physicality can be used for spiritual. Material can be used for a mitzvah. Just recently we read in the Parsha about how, well, okay, trust me, we read this in the Parsha, uh, how, uh, how the righteous people value their money more than their life. More Whoa. than their what? More than their life. Well, what does that mean? It means that their life and their money are both the same. They're both tools for them to achieve spiritual greatness. So I'm not saying that we, that we have to throw away our money. We don't do that. We don't believe in that. Right? But what's our focus? Right. Is, it, is the ultimate goal the physical or the spiritual? Do we, are we going to fall for this, this scam? Right? Hope, hopefully not. And logically, we, we, we work through, you know, logically it makes sense to us. What I'm saying makes sense. But we don't realize it because we don't think about it. And it, we have to realize our life, right, is an opportunity to invest. Right? We have capital in the form of, of abilities, intelligence, uh, characteristics, time, this is the most valuable thing we have. Our choices are going to be what are we going to invest our time in? What are we going to prioritize? What, are, what is, has greater value 
and what has diminished value. What is primary importance and what's secondary importance? The allocation of our time and resources and energy and focus, that is the primary choice of our life. That's what our life is about. That's the conflict of our lives. And if we do nothing, if we don't think about it, we're just going to be all physical. That's, that's, that, that's our goal. But if we stop and think about it, we say, oh, well, wait a minute, there's a big picture here, right? This is an upside-down world. We're all investing in something that's known as zero. We're all going to die one day, right? What happens when you die? What do you have left? All your, only your mitzvahs, right? Your body's put on the ground. Hopefully, we don't burn our bodies. Put on the ground, and they pour dirt over it, and it starts decomposing, and little, little uh, worms come and chew up your body. That's what happens. It's what happens to each one of us. Now, what then? Why don't we think about that time? You know why we don't think about them? Because it freaking terrifies us. <laughs> it does. Yeah. It does. But it's a very valuable thing to think about because it gives us clarity. It, it kind of ushers us into this other world, this clear world. Oh, like, when you think about that, well, now we have some clarity. By the way, if you look at the holidays, the high holidays, there is a tremendous focus on death during the high holidays. We might have spoken about this recently. Who shall live, who shall exactly. Why do you do that? Because uh, no time of the year do we need to try to realign our focuses than the high holidays. And the best, one of the best tools we have is to focus on our own mortality. Because when you realize you're going to die, and we're all going to die, and we all know that, exactly, you try to realign your priorities. Is this, I, think, I recall hearing a lecture where the I was saying that they used to put the cemeteries very close to the homes. Okay. So that people would constantly be reminded of their mortality for that very reason. So they weren't like in some, I mean, it was just like they were there physically. Yeah, well, there's a verse, uh, there's a verse in the Bible, I don't know exactly where it is, but it's better to go to a house of, to a funeral than the house of celebration. A funeral's depressing. Who lets go to funerals, right? That's the mitzvah. Well, it's a, it's a mitzvah, but both of them could be a mitzvah, right? To, to gladden the, the, the bride and the groom, right? That's all, both of them is a mitzvah. But what does it do for us, right? Right? You go to the, to the cemetery, and you go and you see the body being put on the ground, and you realize that, that one day that's going to be you. We hope it doesn't come for a while, right? We hope we have more opportunity, but we never know. You never know. And I think a loss of a loved one really does oh, yeah. bring you to that state of mind, you know? But any time you have an encounter, a touch point with death, you hopefully you'll think about that. And then, well, that ought to influence your behavior. Now, this is the most difficult thing in the world, by the way. I'm, I'm talking about it as if it's so simple. It's simple logically, you know, but it's very difficult in practice. If it wasn't difficult, everyone would do it, right? It makes sense. It's logical. We're halfway there. Like we, we, once we have this recognition, we're, we're in the 98th percentile of humanity, with regards to having this perspective. But to actually do it has to counteract the balance that our body and soul have, uh, the equilibrium of a body and soul. Right now, we're body for a soul, distant, 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 distant second. That's the way we are. That's the way everyone is. And that's by design. Remember, we only feel what our body feels. We don't feel what our soul feels. If you, if you would feel what your soul felt, you wouldn't consider sitting. So you think the soul Just like you don't consider putting your finger through a fire. Well, some kids do that, but 
Yeah, just... But, right, you wouldn't do that for a long extended period, right? Would you jump into a fire? Why not? Look how exciting it is. Look how appealing it is. Look how invigorating. Look, look at it, right? There's a rush. Why do we jump in fire? Because we know we'll die or we'll get severely burned. Why do we sin? We're jumping into a fire where we don't feel it. If you felt it, if your feelings were linked to your soul, then four hours without Torah would feel like four hours without food. And 17 hours without Torah, you'd be like, ah, give me some Torah. You know, like, give me the IV, I need some Torah. Like, that's what you would do. That's what you would feel. That's what your soul feels. You don't feel it. So our feelings are not aligned with reality. Janet, you had something you wanted to say. I'm sorry. I'm not sure I... I Well, not a soul has feelings. We don't know what a soul has, right? We we do. I'm saying we actually do know what a soul has. But I'm saying a soul, us feeling the soul, because the closer we get to the soul, the more likely we are to have that feelings. I'll give you an example, right? Uh, you see tragedy; it pains you. It doesn't pain you physically; it pains you spiritually. Well, yeah, uh, maybe, but I, but the real pain, the deep pain of tragedy, like, you know, someone mentioned death of love. Well, physically, you're just as fine, right? You're fine. You're healthy. You're breathing, right? But why not? Because it's such an egregious spiritual pain that even us who have such a, such a delicate or such a minimal connection to our soul, we still feel that because it's so overwhelming. no question that, Nothing I mean, stress, which is, no. stress is more of an emotional thing. I mean, it has, you know, every medical journal, I think, says that stress has physical ramifications on us. Uh, and you can die of broken heart syndrome. But I, I really do, uh, I, I think it's interesting that you would point out that, you know, where it brings us to. Because I have had non-Jewish people before ask me why do you guys dwell so much on death, you know? I literally have had them ask me that. You know? Well, uh, you know, it's ironic. I, I kind of turn that around on Christians and say, you know, it's the truth is, deep down, and Rabbi, tell me if I'm out of line here or not, I say, y'all are the ones that are talking about, you know, uh, being saved and, and, and next world and everything, Judaism is more preoccupied with this world. Uh, Y'all say, um, you know, if you accept Jesus, everything's fine in the next world. You know, we're more interested in making this world better. So yeah, there's death, because that's part of this world, but we're trying to make make it a better thing. Uh, as Jews, that's our mission. But, but I never thought of where it the brings the world, not perfect All religions are about at least in a major part Well, what's interesting is that what's interesting about that is that I would say of all the religions, we do it the least. Exactly. But there's a reason for that because we don't. It's very easy to make someone submit to you by making him 
fearful of something that no one could ever prove, right? Bottom line is we are more preoccupied huh? with this world, right? I mean, making we, well, this world. Yes, but, but what is this world? Remember, you just said this world is better. Who knows a Hebrew term for that? Tikkun olam. Booyah, right? Tikkun olam. Tikkun olam. What does that mean? Perfect the world. To fix the world, that's right. So let's, so let's, so let's, uh, let, 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 let's just, just finish, tie, tie this up really neatly, okay? So we have this, um, this equation, right? We're, our life is an investment. We choose what we want to invest in. One of the investments going to zero, but we want we, we, we are just everything every fiber of our feelings is driving us to make that investment. Okay? When we die, the smoke screen's gone and the myth of the viability of such an investment is removed. Okay? Now I gave an example, I came up with an example over Shabbos. Um, I, I, I said uh, you know, I wanted people did you did you get braces, you got braces, you got braces. Does anyone put braces on baby teeth? Why not? Exactly. Why would you want to beautify something that's only for a couple of years, right? But you, you, you take this example, right? We're, our whole life is about putting braces on baby teeth, right? Our whole life is the baby teeth, right? It's 70-year baby teeth, but it's, it's, still, it's still transient. It's still passing, and yet we're all thinking about how to put, you know. But what's permanent, that we don't worry about. So it's, it's, it's upside down. It's upside down. Imagine, you, yeah. imagine a, a society that only put braces on baby teeth, but not on permanent teeth. Can you imagine that? Crazy, crazy people. But we're those people, you know. Because we're only focusing on the on the on the on the on the, on the, on the transient, on the temporary. Um, we're focused on physicality and not and ignore exactly. But now, go ahead. Maybe this is getting too far or jumping the gun or whatever. But you know, you know, uh, there is a reason that we should be in this world. Oh yeah. It's oh yeah. Oh yeah. So let's 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 tidy up here. Yeah, let's, okay. let's 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 make mean, a nice little yeah, nice little knot. Just, we don't believe in just existentialism. That's right. So so okay. So we have a goal, or we have a a problem, and or even two problems. Our problem is that what really in the true world is lofty, we view as lowly, and what is truly lowly, we view as lofty. If we could align our perspectives, right? if we could make our world as clear as the other world, what what, what results? So you said the, the you said the great uh, phrase, the catchphrase of tikkun olam. What does the word tikkun olam mean? To fix the world. Well, why why is, why is the world broken? Because there's huh? It's upside down. Exactly. Our world's upside down. The goal of the Jewish people as a nation is to take the upside down world, mm, inverted world, and fix it. But isn't there something in the Torah, and maybe this is part of the upside down, maybe it isn't, doesn't it say the inclination of man is evil from his youth? That's Proverbs. It says the way of the child's heart is to evil. Well, he quoted verse Genesis. Right. Yes, so what about that? Well, then I think God is saying, is he not, that there is evil in the world. I'm giving you an antidote. It's up to you whether you take it and promote it. Which What's is the, the antidote? Torah, the Torah. A thousand percent. We use the Torah and we neutralize. So the reason the world is broken, to answer your question, is because that's the nature of man. Well, 
No, repeat that verse again. The Go reason ahead. that the world is... No, 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 the verse that you quoted from Genesis. Oh, the, the inclination of... Oh, booyah, the inclination of man. Right. So the inclination of man is fundamentally the problem. We would call that the smoke screen. Right. Right? The inclination of man is what hoodwinks us into believing that 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 is truly lowly, we view it as lofty. Means this disconnect of realities is a result not of man per se, but of man's the flaw with man or the 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 primary uh, uh, inhibitor for man's greatness, and that's the inclination. Right. And by the way, if you look at the what the how the Talmud describes the inclination, give you guys some great some uh, some nice little some nice little more bow ties, right? Like what are the bow ties, right? So what does the Talmud say, right? In Talmud and Sukkah. In the future, the Umayyad is going to slaughter the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, the inclination that you mentioned. And uh, I might have mentioned this a couple of years. I think I mentioned this a couple of years ago. So I don't know if you guys remember. If you do, great. If not, hear it again. Even if you do, it's good to hear it again. So the Umayyad is going to slaughter the evil inclination. And the righteous are going to weep, and the wicked are going to weep. You ringing a bell yet with anyone? Yeah? Yeah? There we go. So we got one, one bell rung. So everyone's weeping. Am I, why? The righteous are going to weep. How did we overcome such a mighty mountain? And the wicked are going to weep, and they're going to say, how do we trip over such a small strand of hair? So you have the Almighty slaughtering the evil inclination, everyone's crying, but the righteous see one thing and the wicked see something entirely different. How is that possible? What's he slaughtering? Is he mighty slaughtering a mountain or is he slaughtering a strand of hair? The answer is, is that what the inclination does is take something which is lowly, strand of hair, and magnify it and amplify it and make it look so impressive and so exciting and so alluring and so appealing that it looks like a mountain. So much bigger than what it really is. It takes something lowly and makes it lofty. That's what it does. And then you have the righteous, and they actually never, they never bought, they never, they never, they never bought it. You know? They didn't fall for the scam. And they didn't fall for the scam, and therefore to them, you know, they, they still have the perspective of this is something which is, you know, we overcame something that was lofty, right? Because at that time, when we started off, it was lofty. And the righteous and, and, and the wicked, well, they're looking at it from the opposite perspective. And to them, it's so painful because then they, when they, once they realize that, that that they thought was lofty was really so lowly, that's painful for them. So the role of the Yetzirah, of the evil inclination that you mentioned, is to take something that is indeed lofty and turn it into, uh, indeed lowly, and make it very lofty. I'll give you another example. I mentioned this also last time. We, uh, the Talmud describes the Yetzirah as the yeast in the dough. Remember that? Yeast in the dough. What is the ye- what's the role of the yeast? Make it bigger. Right? So what something really is, it could be really small, right? it could be really lowly, comes along the evil connection like you mentioned, makes it look really big. Once the evil inclination's gone, 
right? Once the, uh, once the fundamental flaw of humanity is removed, well, we see it for what it really is. That's where Rabbi Yosef came and says, whoa, I, came, I went to a world where there is, this, there is no smoke stream, there's no Yetzirah, there's no evil inclination. And then I saw things the way they really are. And the capacity for, for, for expanding the lowly and diminishing the lofty, well, that's removed. And I saw things for what they really are. And indeed, I would say our life goal fits the world. Why do you fix the world? It's up and down. Why is it upside down? Because of the Yetzirah. You beat the Yetzirah, you make the, the worlds aligned. Voila, tikkun olam. Clarity. And by the way, who does that? Who does that very well? Right? Who are the people that contribute to... Right? So what does he say to him? Well, what's the final conclusion of that piece of time? He says, well, what about us? Torah scholars. How are we viewed in there? He says, well, the same way you're viewed here. You live in a clear world. You are the ones that individually align your perspectives, align your realities. And therefore, you are living in a fit. You're doing your job of Tikkun You're fixing your world. The individual's responsibility to fix their own world, the Jewish people on a collective scale, to fix the world at large. If we could... If we could... Go ahead. Even with all of our evil inclinations. Well, that's, that, that's the goal. And how do you fight it? Steve told us. There, there's an antidote. What's the antidote? Follow, the, follow God. Follow the Torah. Follow... What does the Gemara says? You, you literally quoted a Gemara. I don't know if you even knew about it. The Gemara says, Barazi Yitzhahara, Barazi Torah Tavlo. Almost word for what you said. I, I created Yitzhahara. I created this smoke screen. I created this, uh, uh, this, um, it's like one of those mirrors. Oh, it's a bad, bad thing. You know those mirrors that make you look really, really big or really small? <laughs> That's Fun what, house whatever. <laughs> I created that, and then, and you see things, you see distorted images, right? You see a distortion. I created that, but I created the Torah as this antidote. That's almost word for word from a Gemara in Kedushin. I think I read that in a Dennis Prager book. Well, there you go. <laughs> uh, and that's so. If we could really synthesize or, or crystallize the mission of the Jews and the role of the Torah into one sentence, what would it be? Well, to fix the world by neutering the Yetzirah and demonstrating and living and having the perspective that. The spiritual is really lofty, and the physical is really lowly. Mazel tov. Isn't that kind of one of the translations of the Aleinu prayer? Doesn't it kind of... What prayer? The Aleinu. Uh, doesn't it reference kind of improving the world, or that that's what we yearn to do? or something? Right, exactly. The, 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 um, it talks about the fits the world, the kingdom of God. That's right. Okay, so let's talk about sin for a little bit. Sorry, I'm trying some notes here. So what is sin? Missing the mark. Missing the mark. Right. No. Right, so the Hebrew word for chait. Well, chait means to miss. The, 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 the actual etymology of the word chait, which is sin, means to miss the mark. Well, in the, in the light of, of, of how we are setting up 
our universe, it means it's a misappropriation of priorities. All right? It's when we, we reject the permanent in favor of embracing the temporary. It's not like the, the inspiration is wrong. It's just where we're directing our inspiration, our focus, and our efforts and priorities towards. That's all it is. It's missing the mark. Like you say, you, you, you shot for the wrong target. Uh, but the Talmud also says in the book of Sota that, that a person only sins if they are insane. If they're insane. Which seems like, of course, well, you, don't we all sin? And we're all insane. So we're all insane. Well, what does that mean? It means that there's something obvious. And something ob- that's true. That, that we, we there's a verse to that effect that there's no tzaddik that doesn't sin. But is insane in the Talmud the same context or definition as we know it today or we think of it today? You know? uh, well, maybe it's temporary insanity. I think you we know? have a, a, an idea of sin as something different than just missing the mark. I think when, when we use the word sin in our language, we look at it as being something super bad. I mean, well, 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 that brings up an interesting people. point, Jen. And, and, and I'm curious, does the Talmud or anything in our teaching, Rabbi, uh, distinguish between, you've heard the slogan, a sin's a sin, but doesn't, it's, doesn't our teaching say some sins are worse than others, or does it even address that? It does, it does address that. It does address Certainly, that. Certainly, I think most of us would agree murder is not as bad as telling a white lie or something. Murder, it's all about murder now, is not as bad? I'm sorry, that. murder is much worse. <laughs> I'm gonna, sorry, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, so, well, so the Rambam tells us that the worst sin you could possibly do is murder. It's not a surprise, okay, unsurprisingly. So that makes me feel better. Yeah, of course. But 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 a sin as we defined it, missing the mark, right? It's it's you know it's just misdirection. Uh, but like we said, it's it's someone making that very poor investment decision, right? When someone does something that's patently in, insane, almost there's no way to do it unless they're insane, right? This is illogical. Now the problem is, yes, it's illogical if we could strip away any of the in, uh, influences of the eighth Sarah, right? Everyone sins because we're all under the thumb and dominion of our Yetzirah. But if you just strip away the cost-benefit analysis, it's all you have is a cost-benefit analysis of a sin versus a mitzvah. Which, by the way, the Talmud encourages us to do, right? The, the Mishnah, right? Every time you do, a, a, every action you do, just examine, like you would do, right? very prudently to do, what are the benefits, right? What are the liabilities? What are the drawbacks? Right? What can I potentially gain? What are the risks? That's what you would do when you invest, right? No? Isn't that a, the right way to invest? I'm talking to the money, right? That makes a lot of sense, right? Right. The mission says in, in, the, in the chapters of the fathers that whenever we do a, a, an action, we have to say, what are the benefits of the mitzvah? versus what do I lose from it? And what are the benefits of the sin versus what I lose from that? But if we could act so measuredly and so logically and just, just work it out, what, what do I stand to gain, what do I stand to lose? No, none of us would sin. The problem is that most of us are not approaching it logically. 
right? We're being drawn by our feelings, right? We're not thinking about it. But if we did, it would be very illogical for us to sin. It would be insanity. You are embracing a fleeting world, one that passes like the wind or passes like the dream, like we say on the holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. In the American world... Go ahead. Mm. So you want to? So you want to? You want to get us all, all off the hook? Yeah. <laughs> I think I think Andrea Yates was um, um, was uh, found that way. So you had then no personal responsibility for your act because you could not control it. So you want to say we're so you're trying to find a loophole? We're off the hook. <laughs> no, no, I, I don't think. No, what I'm saying is. Well, I'm saying what's interesting is that the, the, the Torah does talk about what happens if you have a shota, someone's insane. Mm-hmm. But the difference is that someone who is insane is in, incapable of being sane. Well, we are capable of being sane. Wait a minute, can it, does it imply there could be temporary insanity? Exactly. A sin is temporary insanity. That's what a sin is. No sin is temporary insanity. Right? Because there's no other way to possibly explain our sin. And it's because of our Yetzirah, of course. Uh, but we are hoodwinked. We are, we are, we are, we'll fall for the, the scam. But sin is temporary insanity. But it exactly. does give us the mechanism, and maybe again this is jumping the gun, to atone for that temporary insanity, doesn't it? Yeah, well, of course, of course, of course, okay. of course, of course. Unless, I guess, it's murder. I don't think there is any... Because you, no, you can't bring the guy back to there's, life. There's, like, there's Mar- no ato- atonement for murder, right? Well, you could... You, you could atone if you're not guilty because you could not control Well, who said you couldn't control it? Well, because you're temporarily insane. No, your, your decision was temporarily insane, you know? Uh, it, it was it was insane It had you thought about it, but you didn't think about it, anybody, and that's why you would be means you could be held accountable for not thinking about it, for what was, was in your control. But um, your example that, of, of things that you, uh, that you cannot atone for, the Gemara brings a few examples of things that, you, that, are, can, that are actions that can't be undone. So you kill someone, you can't bring the guy back to life. Um, that's if you that's if people um, prove that you're guilty. But then nowadays they have DNA and other evidence that brings out we had that person in jail for X many years and he was not. Right, but God doesn't need uh, DNA testing to to know what happened, right? Uh, Another example that Gamar brings if someone commits adultery and produces a baby, right? That kid is lasting testimony to their sin. That that you can't undo, right? There's always going to be some something extant, something that's here. Yeah, but in today's world, there's abortion, but you know, let's not get into that. Well, but that. (laughs) <laughs> well, we, we, by the way, have a class scheduled on that, so I look forward to uh, duking this out with you guys But uh, in the future. Um, but your point but, is, it's possible you may be pivoting over to the first problem, right? Of course, that person, even in the biblical world, that um, child that's the lasting testimony of that sin could become a... Oh, yeah, greater than, a, a great, uh, greater, than the, greater than the high priest, that's right. That's absolutely right. And by the way, I, um, the fact that temporary insanity, you said it, the Gemara says, the Gemara say that, 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 the Gemara says this is more in Sota. A person only sins 
So we said if he's insane. But the way it actually says it, it says if it's, if it's a spirit of insanity sweeps over him. So it, doesn't, it does indeed say that this person's not, in, not insane. It's just their decision was so inexcusable that it was temporary insanity. So. Do you recall how many very wealthy people always go to the insane asylum for about two years and then they're deemed fit to reduce, come back into society? They don't go to the chair. What are you talking about here? I said very wealthy people, when they commit a crime like that, like a murder or something like that, they always are finding that they're temporarily insane. You're saying that uh, that's they... That's what they say. They don't get any kind of retribution. Yeah, but again, they that's... They go to the, the crazy house, I'll say. That's been there after a year. Yeah, John Hinckley is, you know... Been in and I mean, he's still, I think, but I think they let him out sometime. But he's they let him out after about a year, he yeah. gets out. I mean, yeah. well, but what the thing is, is that with God, you can't, you can't pay a high priced lawyer to try to right. change uh, justice. But why don't we talk about us in our low level? We are sinning. I wanted to know what kind of sin I'm doing. Like, is somebody calling me? Oh, I'm so busy. And, Oh, I'll call later. Is that a scene? I, I want to know if a little bit we talk about us. We are here to learn and change our Oh, yeah. What, what this, is by the way, sin, this my was... sin, my sin. Well, how grave is my sin? I don't kill, of course. I don't go still, but I sin. So how can I? I need, I need to go out from here. With that, uh, well, this was all an introduction. <laughs> you got to wait for the, you got to wait for the next. I was episode. late. I was late. I seen I was late. So this was all an introduction to to <laughs> this is all introduction to uh, to the next realm of our uh, ten levels of faith. We did three of them last week, right? Which we would call the we would say ten, ten levels of faith, right? The first three levels are the, they don't change what your perspective is. We described our pursuit of greatness or of clarity in this world as aligning our perspective, our universe, our world, our priorities, our actions, our thoughts, etc., with reality. Right? Like the Torah scholars, they live in the clear world because to them it's not upside down. What is everything is properly valued? Everything is you know portioned correctly. And thus, we could perhaps say that emuna, in the Jewish sense, right? it's not just some sort of thing that you have in your mind, some sort of box that you checked, or some sort of belief that you have, or some sort of knowledge that you acquired. It's a different life perspective. It's when you actually value the things that are truly valuable, and you diminish in importance the things that are not so important. That's what Amuna is. And there's many layers of living with this perspective. We've got seven more of them. Right? The more you align, the more clarity you have, the more of a clear world that you live in, the closer you are to living in a world where the Yetzirah is not a factor, where the smoke screen is removed, the higher of a level of Amuna you have. So this is all an introduction because, okay, now, now let's see... What kind of world can we live in? Like I said, very practically. What can we do now to try to move up the scale and move up the pole and become people that are living with more true priorities, with more clarity, with 
taking things that really are lofty and lasting and giving them the proper due. So let's start with, uh, with mitzvahs. Right, what's the point of a mitzvah? Hmm? Okay, so it's an action that we do. Either it's, it's a mitzvah, there's a negative mitzvah, don't do X, or there's a positive mitzvah, do Y, right? We have, we have hundreds of these. Every one of the negative mitzvahs, don't do X, is a way for us to reject something that our body may have wanted, that our physicality would have done, we would have done otherwise, perhaps, perhaps we would have done otherwise, had we not been instructed to do so. And every positive mitzvah is a certain embracing of an activity or a thought or behavior or an action that had we not been instructed to do it, we wouldn't have done it. That's a long way of saying that a mitzvah is an action of clarity. It's an action that we really should not do in this world. If, if things were all distorted, if everything was upside down, we wouldn't do it. Or we wouldn't refrain from doing it. Clarity on the smoke. Clarity, clearing up the smoke. Exactly, exactly. Now, we look at them as hundreds of mitzvahs, right? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. A few of them are mitzvahs that we would call intellectual mitzvahs. Believe in God, don't do idolatry, love God, fear God. There's a few of them. But most of them are, act, are things that we do with, you know, that we actually do with our behavior, right? Put on tefillin every day, mezuzah in every door, observe the Shabbat every week, say the Shema twice, once in the morning, once at night, study Torah. Like these are actually these are things that we do. Well, or to write a Torah. That's one of the mitzvahs to write a Torah scroll. To write a letter, I don't know if you fulfilled oh, that. Yeah, a Torah, like you're supposed to write a Torah. Okay, okay, fine. That's another, that's another mitzvah. There's many hundreds of mitzvahs, right? And every one of these mitzvahs, we do them why? Why do we do a mitzvah? What's the only reason to do a mitzvah, really? To focus on the spirits or to focus on To focus, but to live. Yeah. To live in a way where you're prioritizing that that is lofty in the clear world, and you're diminishing that that is lowly in the real world. So it's, it's an action that someone who is a citizen of that world would do. Let me ask you a question, since where you're going with this, is what, what we want to be doing in our finite time here is maximizing our mitzvot. Oh, yeah. So you mentioned in the past that, I think it was Mamani said that there were certain mitzvot that equaled all of them together. I know like with the sin, it was like Lashon Horal was like equal to all the others together. So could you like identify the ones that equal all of them together? So if I know I'm not like being fully observant on Shabbat, I can just maximize these other ones and like maximize my output. For You're looking for more loopholes? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which ones have the most credits and the most negatives? And I'll avoid the worst negatives. And okay, so let's so let let's go back to. Um... I want yeah, you do my investment plan. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so do you do you know do you know his feet? <laughs> so, uh, so we're trying to become citizens of the clear world and mitzvahs we found very interesting um, Talmud that we've mentioned here countless times there's 248 mitzvahs 
corresponding to 248 limbs. And we have a book called the Sefer Haredim, which tells us mitzvah by mitzvah which limb it corresponds to. What does that tell us about the to- totality of mitzvahs? When you have them all, you do them all. What does that mean? Not all of them. Huh? 248 is not all of them. Well, positive mitzvahs. What is so you're complete, exactly. So let's say, if we could say that our goal with mitzvahs is to become citizens of this clear world. So what we do a mitzvah that corresponds to our hand. We, we perfect that mitzvah. Well, our hand now, part of us, is a citizen of that world, right? But the goal is to not leave any man behind, right? Or any limb behind, Right? You don't want to live limb, leave limbs behind. Does it make any sense? Am I making sense? Right? We want to make sure that we are, in, a, in, a, in our entirety, we are going to become spiritual entities. Well, so the fact that some mitzvahs correspond to major themes, right? So, you know, you, your heart is, if you don't have a heart, you're, you're, you're done, right? So what does that mean if you do have a heart? That's everything, right? Because if you don't have it, it's nothing. But does that mean that's all you need? So I don't see any really way to do it. There may be other loopholes. <laughs> I think we should maybe give a, give a talk about that. Because I once gave a lecture. I called it Spiritual Shortcuts. <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 a, a synonym for loopholes, right? <laughs> <laughs> the quick and easy way, right? I'll tell you what the loophole is. So there's three Gemaras. But all three of them, the book of Avodah And they talk, and three of them are three episodes. I'm going to go through the episodes right now, because um, the three episodes uh, that uh, talk about people make tremendous sacrifices. And they all end with this prophecy that says, Yesh it's possible to acquire a world in one second. Okay? And these are f- three people that all of them were, they were, you know, they weren't great people. I'll give you the three people. One guy was a, he was a connoisseur of prostitutes. That's what he was. And Thomas says, hey, you would travel great distances and pay tons of money because there was one really high-priced prostitute that he hadn't patronized. And then he has this, it's an interesting story, and he has this uh, epiphany, this inspiration, and he, and he changes his life in one instant, and he, and he, he just is so in, caught up with regret, and he changes everything, and he's so pained that he dies. And the Talmud says, well, prophecy came and announced there's someone who acquired the world in one, in one second. The next story is about an executioner. The executioner in the times of the Hadrianic persecutions of the 130s. 
the, of the common era, where Hadrian's killing all the rabbis in Israel. And the executioner is there, and, and he's taking one of the rabbis, and he wraps him in a Torah scroll and lights a Torah scroll on fire. And then he takes this wool and douses it in water and puts it in the guy's heart to lengthen and right, protract the pain and let him suffer more. Right? Romans were experts at that. And then he has a moment that he says, I can't believe I'm doing this. And he has talked to the rabbi. He says, well, could you guarantee me if I, if I, if I stop this pain? Right? Could you guarantee me that I'm going to have a portion of wool to come? He says, yes. He pulls the wool off. He jumps into the fire. He dies together with the rabbi in the Torah scrolls with the letters flying in the air. Very interesting. Booming prophecy. It's possible to acquire wool in one instant. And the third story is also about someone who converts, uh, who, someone who is there to save the Jewish people, and uh, he, he's, one of the, uh, he's one of the advisors to the king, and the king says, let's kill the people, and he says, no, you can't kill them, and he fights for them, he says, okay, well, we're not killing the Jewish people, but we're going to kill you, because you spoke, you know, you spoke to the king, you know, you interrupted the king. So he's like, okay, so he's being paraded down to be killed, and they say to him, oh, you're, you died, for the people, but you're not one of the people. So he takes the knife and he circumcises himself. And he's like, ah, I, I, I paid my penance. And he get executed and someone who acquires his world in one, in, one, in one second. All three of them died, correct? All three of them acquired the world in one second. What, what this is telling us is like this, right? Go back to uh, our, our, our shortcut, right? We want to become a citizen of this universe, this alternate universe. There's two ways to do it. Limb by limb, mitzvah by mitzvah, to slowly build over the course of a life, to build this, this, this world, this you, right? That you're the citizen of this world. Or you just jump all in. You give up your entire life for it. You dedicate it all. That's the way you acquire one. All three of these three people, they all did it. They all died doing it because there's no other way to do it. If you die for Kiddush Hashem, if you die for God, if you means it's as if you take it's not just taking the multiple of parts and creating the one; it's just creating the one all at once. That's is that the most? What's the word I'm looking for? Is that the most? I'm, I'm having a brain. Well, is that the most suicide. amazing? Is that the greatest thing you can do? Is that's dying for which is. Is, uh, like well, it's not only well, I mean, it's not suicide. Islamic uh, extremist strain in that. I mean, don't they say they're dying for God? All, well, we know that they're. They, 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 want the, they want their virgins to come to Yeah, well, sure, something. that too. But yeah, there is that reward there. And I guess that's more specific in Islam. But, but I mean, uh, it's not suicide. It's giving up your life for a cause different. That's not martyrdom, but is that martyrdom? It's martyrdom. It's not suicide. But isn't that what It's Islamic dedicating your life to a cause. Isn't that what Islamic fanatics say they're doing? They well, a lot of people have people. done that. People have done it for causes that are not even religious. Right? People have died for communism. People have died for communism. Yeah, unfortunately. When they were executing all the communists and they were saying, oh, the communism, communism, people die. Like, uh, on the uh, you know, on the gallows, screaming for for Lenin and Stalin, right? Yeah. People did that. And people died for freedom too. Oh yeah. Pass the Berlin Wall. 
Exactly, or people died for their country, right? So a lot of people give up their lives for a cause. If you give up your life for God, right, if, you, if you make the ultimate sacrifice for God, then you are dedicating your entirety of life, right, of existence to God, and that's a way to circumvent the normal process, the, you know, limb by limb, mitzvah by mitzvah. Can you wait until you have, like, <laughs> well, the thing is like this. We don't know if we're going to be afforded with such an opportunity. Um, you can never know if you'll have the opportunity. You know, and it's, it's actually, you know, for a lot of people, the people that do it the right way, so to speak, what's interesting is that there's an addendum to that Gemara. All three, all three times that... Uh, the Gemara tells of these people that they had the prophecy that they get all my butt in one instant. It says, Bacha Rebbe. Rebbe cried. Rebbe is one of the great rabbis of the Talmud. Rebbe Judah the Prince, known to us as. Means, if you are the one who has to struggle every hour of every day to battle the Yetzirah, to try to achieve this clarity, and you do it the hard way, and you see some guy jump into it. It's very painful. It's very frustrating, it, right? It, it's like you're waiting in a traffic jam for that exit for the highway, and somebody cuts right before. Or I'll give you another example. There was a, uh, like, it's, <laughs> now we have the lottery, right? You're the guy who... Something 900 million. Oh, it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be, you already hear first, guys. 1.3? You already hear first? It's going to be 1.5. You heard it. You heard it here? Either way, so you so you so the guy who wins it, right? So what is the first thing he does? Pays the, he has to pay Barack Obama. Is the first thing. <laughs> the first thing that the first thing that he does is he buys an estate next to Bill Gates. The King Ranch, <laughs> right? So it, the guy who actually still not even close to Bill Gates. Well, I know, but uh, but the guy who. Who works? Who sweated for for you know for for decades, building his wealth, is frustrated by the guy who just got it with buying a two dollar lottery ticket, right? Instantly like that, it's frustrating, right? So Rebbe, right? Rebbe is crying because it's like you know the, you know because he, he, he so this guy managed to do it in one instant what everyone else has to do over their whole life. So. Your, your, your hope is to say, well, let's wait for that time. You know. Um, <laughs> let's wait until we're terminally ill. What, uh, which, by the way, we don't, we don't give up even if we're, you know, if, even if our time has come, right? There's a way to die as a Jew as well. Um, but can we ignore, you know, till that time comes? You know, we hope that we'll never need to give up our lives, right? Ironically, you know, it's we don't want to give up our lives, even though that may be the best thing for us, right? Well, we should all be working towards that because you never know when you will die. It could be in an accident. You're not even waiting for it. There, you're gone, so you didn't have a chance like he wants to wait for. <laughs> you won't have a chance to do the right thing. Exactly. The, the Mishnah says you should repent the day before you die. What day is that? <laughs> Which that's today, right? We don't know what we're going to live tomorrow. So how, what does that mean when it says that? 
obviously when we don't know, how, why is it that even in there? Me, well, what that means is, is that we have to do what is, you know, what is the most logical approach for us to do, which is because we don't know what the future is going to bring, we have to deal with the best we could do today. So in other words, you don't take that phrase literally. None of us know. You just always are trying to do the right thing so you can do it. You can repent before, the day before you die. I mean, right? Means every right. If you logically follow that, okay. every day you have to be repenting. So isn't there a saying where you should live your new day like if it's your last day? So if you could do that, you'll have a very good life. Probably the same principle there, but 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 isn't there something? And this is. What I would, you know, this thing about martyrdom or dying for God or whatever, uh, even in our faith, I'm curious about it because isn't, I, 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 when, because we, we are taught not to do mitzvahs, correct me if I'm wrong, if they could harm you, right? Uh, you know, if it would make you sick, if it would, yet, it's a, because it, it isn't the provision that governs that something like you live by the mitzvahs, you don't die by the mitzvahs. That's right. Couldn't that be construed as right. saying that you shouldn't die for God? Well, but there are exceptions to that. Uh, the Gemara says that the mitzvah, like I said, the verse says in Leviticus 18 that uh, the way it's described, the mitzvah that the mitzvah that a person does and you should live via them. Right. So the mitzvah is given for us to live, not to die. So therefore, so the guy comes and says, okay, or you you know you're the um, you're the diabetic, and you're gonna die if you don't have food right now and there's no kosher restaurant within 50 miles. What do you do then, right? Yeah, it's a mitzvah to eat. That's the mitzvah. That's your mitzvah right now. The man doesn't want us to all die die for mitzvahs. Uh, however, uh, if or if you're a doctor, a uh, qualified doctor, and you come across somebody dying and it's Shabbos. Oh yeah, you, or you work to save that person. You violate the Shabbos. To, exactly, to, that's one of the biggest mistakes you could do. I know we had a, one of our sons, our second son, was born on Shabbos, and it was the weirdest thing for me to do. I'd never done this before, but I'm making phone calls on Shabbos, calling the ambulance, taking the elevator. Mm-hmm. It was it was surreal for me. It was it was just I, it was like I, I'm like I'm like working because I know what I'm supposed to be doing now, but like to me, like to use the phone on Shabbos, I had never done it before. I take in the elevator, pushing the buttons. I make sure I push the buttons because I'm allowed to push the buttons. And you have the other clowns in the, in the hospital that are not Shomer Shabbos. And they're like, uh, I'm like, let me push the buttons because at least I'm allowed to, right? It's a mitzvah for me, you know? And you see the guy and he's got his payas and he's, he's r- driving an ambulance at 80 miles an hour. This is in Israel. Uh, but streets are empty. No one's driving on Shabbos, right? In Jerusalem. And he got to the, to the hospital in like six minutes flat, you know? And... Forty minutes later, we have a, a brand new baby on Shabbos. Was, you know, but that's a mitzvah. Yes, that's a mitzvah. Um, and uh, by the way, the Gemara says just to have a little dampening of our of our fun here. <laughs> uh, the the Gemara says someone who was born on Shabbos is going to die on Shabbos. Which, by the way, I was born on Shabbos as well. Yeah. Huh? Which part of Friday night. Oh, it was interesting. My, so I'm the sixth child in our family. My parents were living in Brooklyn at the time. So it's Friday night in the middle of the winter in, in, in Brooklyn, New York. 
and it's Shabbos, and, you know, she has to go have a baby, right? But there's five little kids in the home. So the, my mom got into a taxi by herself. Can you imagine? Took the taxi to Manhattan, got to the hospital, and I was born, right? Hello. <laughs> Me and my mom, right? Well, that's where they, I don't know, that's, I don't know. It's not, Manhattan's not, it's not so far, right? <laughs> but either way, like, so that's a mitzvah, of course, but the Gemara says that, that I'm going to die on Shabbos because I caused desecration of Shabbos. That's what the Gemara says. That means I'm free of grass when I drive like a maniac, by the way. No. <laughs> it's a joke. Uh, but what does that mean? It mean what that means is, it, it, of course, it's a mitzvah to do that, and we did that for our child. Uh, of course, right? Um, that's the right thing to do. What it means is that even though we're supposed to desecrate Shabbos, we still did. Right? We desecrated the Shabbos, even though it was a mitzvah. Right? But the fact that Shabbos was desecrated, that, uh, that uh, remains true. It's still Shabbos, right? It's the right thing to do, but we hope to... And that's why you're supposed to pray, by the way. You're supposed to daven to not have a baby in Shabbos because you don't want to have to desecrate the Shabbos. I, I'm not trying to get too much off the subject, but when... This is related, but this has been always interesting to me along these lines. When Jesus healed people on the Shabbos, okay, or alleged to whatever the New Testament says, and he argued with the rabbis about it, and they said, you don't do that on Shabbos. Um, Now, and his, you know, I'm trying to... It's maybe like elective surgery? Yeah, I'm trying. You would want to, to do it on a I'm trying to on a see Monday. Jesus, what Jesus did was wrong in that context. Well, I, I believe there's another there's another uh, verse, another statement in the New Testament that he was not observant of Shabbos even uh, outside the realms of uh, of healing people. Uh, so, yeah, what subject is it? Good point. Uh, but to answer your question, Dan, uh, the shortcut. Uh, is where you're not going limb by limb into this world, into this universe, into this become a citizen. You're actually jumping entirely into that. Uh, well, what's interesting is... <laughs> what's interesting is is that uh, Rabbi Akiva, so Rabbi Akiva was killed also in Kedush Hashem. And to him, uh, he was saying the Shema while he was being killed, right? Yes. Right, very, very, you know, in a very gruesome and brutal and gory way, right? So he's saying the Shema, and his students are, are, are perplexed. Why are you saying the Shema now? Like, why, of all times, right? So he says to them, every day I say the Shema, which, which part of the Shema is with all your heart, which means even to give up your life, not with all your heart, with all your soul, give up your life for God. And I said, when will this opportunity come and I can fulfill it? To him... Ideally, it means he was want, he was seeking the opportunity to fulfill it. So, to him, he was like, "I finally got the opportunity to do it all, not limb by limb, but to jump all in." You're gonna fillet me? I've been waiting for this opportunity. Exactly. Was, so that's Rabbi Kiva's perspective, which to us sounds obviously that sounds very bizarre, right? It's not, well, it's, 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 it's insane from our perspective. Dan, face it. The loopholes are limited. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you'd have to take the 248 because you don't know if that opportunity is going to come. 
It would be a bestseller, though, wouldn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I would think so. If he could well, have a shortcut. <laughs> I don't know if that's right to say that the, that, the, that the opportunity will never be available. It seems, it seems that there's a possibility that everyone in our lifetime may have some sort of opportunity to do something that's so inclusive, you know, that's so exhaustive, uh, where it's, oh, even though we might not give up our lives for God, but it may be something which is so difficult that it's tantamount to martyrdom that may give us opportunity. So I think we should look out for those kind of opportunities and seize upon them. Uh, but you're right. I, I think it's, 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 it's very difficult for us to say, well, let's just forget about this and wait for the time to come. Because, by the way, the less connected we are to this idea at large, the less likely it is that we'll actually seize that opportunity should it arise. I, I have a... Go ahead. So I understand that, okay, doing the mitzvah negative or the other, to sustain your life, like you mentioned... Yes. But then again, so if you don't do it, let's say that you don't do that to sustain life. Um, I heard a rabbi speak one time. His grandfather was in the gulag, and you know they offered trade in order to sustain life, and he chose not to do that. And he died. And but yet, no, his life was sustained. I mean, there was another provision. Somehow he was able to get a, you know, rotten piece of bread or something. Who knows? I, I think he told us, but I don't remember what it was. But he did live. But he did not choose. Yeah, so there's actually a, there's an interesting disagreement amongst the commentaries as to whether or not someone is obligated to, give, to, to transgress a mitzvah to save their lives or they're allowed to transgress the mitzvah to save lives, but they're not obligated to. Okay. So, like the example of the treif, right? So someone says, here's the only food you got. It's the treif food. Or is it a mitzvah? Is it mandatory that you, that you eat the food or not? So it's, it's a question. But either okay. way, it's possible that, the, that, that someone may have, it might be legitimate for someone to choose, should they desire, bless you, uh, you. Should, should they be interested to choose to uh, to give their lives and not transgress. Okay. It's an interesting question. Okay. Isn't it also sort of upside down to think that you're going to be able to do everything in a moment rather than living each day righteously? Mm-hmm. I mean, just the concept of, oh, well, I may be able to do it. Yeah, and also, by the way, another point. Nice. <laughs> it's, 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 I would say it's greater uh, to, li- to you know to go the approach of you know of limb by limb so to speak than jumping all in because it's easier it's easier to jump all in it's only yeah, it's a shortcut right um, and it also it can be the product of a moment of inspiration you know a moment of inspiration is not as great as a as a lifetime of toil right uh, and it's also it's very easy to jump into the fire it's very hard to walk slowly and steadily and into the fire like that's much harder. Um, we have a, um, I have a, a one of my great-grandfather, so he was one of the uh, transformative individuals of the pre-war Europe. Uh, he, was, he was killed in 1944. But he wrote this, he, he wrote this line 
that to to walk steadily, you know, measuredly into the fire is much harder than to jump in the fire. And he wrote that, and it's almost uh, you know prescient. Uh, where he himself was, you know, he was in a hospital. The Germans burned down the hospital. German what hospital? They burned down the hospital. They liquidated the hospital. Who, who is this? This is my great-grandfather, Rabbi Abraham Grudzinski. His name was. Um, but he was, he was the spiritual leader of the, or one of the two, the, the, one of the two biggest yeshivas, most influential yeshivas in pre-war Europe. An amazing, amazing individual. But he wrote this line, and he actually got to live it, which is, you know, it's wow. chilling almost. Yeah. Yeah, but, so, it's much easier, it means if you de- dedicate your life for, 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 for God, for Torah, for spiritual life, for Jewish people, for this other world, you're a citizen. You're in. But, that's not as great as someone who lived by this principle for 80 years, right? That, that's much harder. Okay, so I want to... What, what, we have a firm uh, deadline here? No. Oh, We're going to get influx. Okay, so well, let me... Let, let, so let's... Uh, so let's... Um, we'll, 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 I want to just wrap up what we mentioned today because I think it's very important. Um, so we're opening up the discussion about what, it's, what is Amuna really about? Uh, and by extension, if you remember, we spoke, we spoke about it last week, that Emunah is really the one thing that everything else in our life, in our Judaism, extends from. It's the heart, so to speak, that pumps the lifeblood into our spiritual world. Uh, and for us, unfortunately, or for the society at large, faith is something that's out there. You know, it's a thing that we don't want like to talk about. We don't want to think about, you know, it's... It's very private, which is a way of saying we don't want to talk about it. It's not private. It's, you know, and like they always ask, like presidential election season, like talk about your faith. You know, what, what does it mean to you? Which is a way of saying it's not real. It's something that means to you. You know, they don't ask like what is your, you know, what is it? What, it, 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 you know, it's removed from reality, so to speak. That's not that to us. That's anathema. In Judaism, emuna is real. It's alive. And the way we explained it today is that it's a perspective. It's a perspective, it's priorities, it's values, it's the world that we live in. Which world do we live in? Do we live in a physical world or a spiritual world? What do we prioritize? Right? What is important? What's lofty? And what's less important? Right? What's lowly? And obviously that's everything, right? That's the world we live in. That's where every choice we make really is a choice that is going to demonstrate what our level of Amuna is. And the first step that we did today is someone who does mitzvahs as a way of slowly becoming more and more and more spiritual. Every mitzvah, especially when it's done with correct intention, when you realize that a mitzvah is an instruction from God to, told, to tell you how to live your life in the best way, how to become a citizen of the spiritual world, right? that is a level of Jewish faith, of emuna, which is dramatically different. It's alive. It's a behavior. It's not just something theoretical. And this is going to be the beginning of our journey into Jewish emuna, because, well, what could be higher than that, right? Well, other things. 
So uh, next week, God willing, look forward to seeing you all here. Uh, we're going to go into the next, you know, higher levels of, okay, we got a Muna, we got, we got the introduction of what it's all about. How do we actualize it? How do we maximize it? How do we go? Where do we go from here forward? And I look forward to seeing you guys there. Let's uh, let's try to minimize the insanity this week.